I would like to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, you'll find that on page 45 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, and while you're finding your way to Exodus, I do want to let you know that this coming Saturday, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, breaking bread with you at a men's breakfast where I want to uh, share with you a burden that's on my heart for Hamilton Baptist Church. Um, the burden is to see that the men of this church begin an active pursuit of Christ-like sanctification. Not simply a passive uh, pursuit of Christ, but intentionally um, walking shoulder to shoulder with one another, working hard to become more like Jesus. That we might work together to know Christ better, to be like Christ better, and to do Christ's work better. And that we would help one another to do that. And so I, I look forward to laying out that vision, what that looks like for Hamilton Baptist Church this Saturday um, during the men's breakfast. I have no idea what time that is. Uh, someone tell me. 8 a.m. So uh, please um, come and, and enjoy uh, that fellowship as we share a vision that God has put on my heart. So Exodus chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews... You shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would come and you would now help us through your spirit, that we might understand your word, what it means and how it applies to our lives, that we might more faithfully follow you, more faithfully be like you, and more faithfully bring you glory. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The nation's third largest city, Chicago, has been making national news recently due to a 58% surge in the murder rate. In 2016, 750 people were murdered in Chicago, more than New York and Los Angeles combined. The residents there, according to the Chicago Tribune, are in despair over the senseless violence. In response, Mayor Rahm Emanuel plans to hire hundreds of new police officers. Governor Bruce Rauner has signed new gun control legislation, and the FBI has sent an additional two dozen special agents to be stationed in Chicago. As tragic as these events are, could you imagine the government response if instead of, on average, two fatalities a day, there were 3,000? Outside of Chicago, throughout the United States, 
This last year, our nation saw 66 fatalities from terrorist-inspired individuals. From stabbings in a Minnesota mall, to a sniper attack in Dallas killing five police officers, to a machete attack in Columbus, Ohio, to an intentional plane crash in Connecticut, to a mass shooting in an Orlando nightclub. Overall, there were 14 separate fatal terrorist-inspired attacks in America last year, causing great concern and effort on behalf of our government to prevent additional attacks and to protect its citizenry. And it's tragic as these events are, could you imagine the response of our government if instead of, on average, six fatalities a month, there were 83,000 a month? In the year 2015, the global attention was given to a new epidemic called Zika fever, caused by the Zika virus. In February 2016, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak to be a public health emergency of international concern. The virus is especially harmful to the unborn, causing microcephaly, which leads to severe brain damage. In 2016, there were a reported 4,091 cases of Zika fever in the United States, leading to 17 babies born last year with the dreaded disease of microcephaly. In face of this epidemic, the United States government has allocated $1.1 billion to fight the Zika virus. And as tragic as these events are, could you imagine if instead of 17 babies a year, it was over 1 million? Tomorrow marks the 44th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade. Since that time, there have been, on average, 3,000 American babies aborted every day for the last 15,330 days. 83,000 a month, 1 million a year, 59 million over the 44 years, combining to make 1.4 billion abortions worldwide in the last decade. If terrorists were doing this, or gang violence, or some strangely named virus, the governments of this world would use every resource available to them to end it. Instead, our governments sanction, even fund it. I want to speak to you today about the sanctity of human life. I have done so ever since I became a senior pastor. Since 2007, I have preached every 3rd or 4th January on this topic, and every year I don't want to do it. I look forward to a day when I don't have to do it. I pray and hope that day is coming. I want to tell you this morning that all life is sacred. It doesn't matter if it's impacted by violence or terrorists or virus or doctors. All life is sacred. Specifically, I want to deal with, once again, the issue of abortion this morning. I hope I, I do with truth today. I want to preach with truth. In other words, I, I'm not making a political speech today. I'm not running for office nor, God willing, shall I ever. <laughs> Abortion is not a political issue. 
It is not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not a child issue. It's not a social issue. And all due respect to the half a million of my fellow Americans marching down the street yesterday, it is not a woman's issue. It is a biblical issue. It is an issue about who God is and who He has made us. And I want to tell you the truth today. I want to do so for many reasons. One of the reasons is I want to prepare you when you, my friends, are encountered with an unexpected pregnancy. The statistics tell us that 10% of those women in America who have abortions identify themselves as born-again Christians, which means that some of you here will without a doubt face this issue one day in your life, whether you are the girl who's pregnant or the boy who's caused it or a friend nearby or a parent who has to deal with it or a grandparent who they come to counsel, you will have to deal with this issue. What will you say then? I want to prepare you with the truth today so that you know what to say on that day. As I gathered my family around last night, and I'll tell you all as what I told them, if you one day, my girls or my boys have an unexpected pregnancy. You get pregnant in sin. Please understand, as broken as your father will be, he will love you and support you and stand by your side as we choose life. We need to choose life. And I understand that some of you have already are not looking into the future to face these issues. Some of you have already encountered them. I have in my years in the pastoral ministry, talked to many post-abortive women. And there may be perhaps some here who have made the wrong decision. I want you to understand I not only preach to you with truth today, I preach to you with grace today that if you have had an abortion or encouraged abortion or demanded an abortion or didn't stop an abortion, God forgives you if you are in Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 43, God speaking through the prophet, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins. What is it? No more. Can we say that together? I will remember your sins no more. If you have gone through this, if you are a follower of Christ and bear the guilt of abortion, please understand that Christ has endured the penalty for that sin and He remembers your sin no more. The gospel is in fact the greatest news in the world for those who condemn themselves for their involvement in an abortion. I speak to you today with grace. Lastly, I'd like to tell you I speak to you with hope. I have hope because the past four or five years, the majority of Americans have identified themselves as pro-life for the first time in our nation's history since we've been keeping that poll. For the last four years, there have been more pro-life legislation passed in our state houses than the previous 20 years combined. With just the statistics were, were released this week, the latest statistics we have are in 2014. And I'll tell you, in 2014, there are fewer abortions in any year since 1973. I think the tide is changing. I have hope. In fact, I have hope because there's no such thing as permanent evil upon this world. I believe abortion comes from the devil. I think he is a murderer, as my Lord has told me. And I'm also told in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. There's a day when Satan will be judged and evil will be defeated and sin will be no more, including abortion. So I have hope in my heart today. 
I want to come and look at Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 with you today as we consider the evil of abortion. I did not plan to preach from this passage. I have written half a sermon on Ephesians 5 to deal with this issue. And yet, like 127 other of you, as we read the Bible together through this year, we read the early chapters of Exodus this week. And I could not help but be struck by what was happening in Egypt and the parallels I see with what's happening in America. And so I simply want to this morning draw ten parallels between the Egyptian genocide of the Hebrew infants with the abortion that is occurring in our land today. Now I understand these will not be exact parallels, but I think they're pointers. I think they will help wake us up to what is happening. That the, the, the sort of thing we see in Egypt, as awful as it is, it's happening every day in America. I also want to then, once we look at those parallels, if God willing we have time, to consider five women and one man who stood for life, that they might be examples to us. Um, and, and so uh, let, let's get some context before we go. You notice we're in Exodus. We know that God chose this man named Abraham, said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world by making you a great nation. He'll form a nation from Abraham named Israel, which would just be a shadow to point us to the one man named Jesus who would come from Israel to bless the nations. And he told Abraham, listen, I'll make this nation from you. And he, he did it 400 years later. You know, verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. And the land was filled with them. So God is doing what he said he was going to do. He is blessing uh, this people. And that presents a problem because they're not living in Canaan. They're living in Egypt. And so what you have in Egypt is a growing immigrant population. And according to the Egyptians, they did not belong. They looked differently. They acted culturally different. Their religion was different. They spoke a different language and they were growing. Perhaps they were about to start taking some of the Egyptian jobs away from them. And the more these foreigners grew in their country, the more the native population became increasingly uncomfortable. And there was a huge part of me that wanted to preach a sanctity of human life sermon just on the racist immigration policies of Egypt. But we'll, we'll save that for next time, perhaps. Consider what they did in response to this threat. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. They're threatened by them. There are too many. Verse 10, we find out why, why they're especially afraid. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The fear is, is that when an enemy comes and attacks these Hebrews, they may rise up and actually join the enemy and overthrow us. There's so many of us. Hey, it's, I can't read that. Maybe you can't as well without thinking about our own recent history in America when we were unjustly attacked by the Japanese Empire. And we, in response to what? We incarcerated 120,000 Japanese Americans. This, this exact same thing is happening here in Egypt. And, and, and yet, rather than incarcerating them, they, they actually enslaved them. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Pithom and Ramesses, so they're enslaved and, and in order to diminish this people, in order to weaken them, in order to keep them from growing. But it's not working. So the enslavery intensifies according to verse 13. So they, uh, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work 
as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves, right? They're hoping this, if we, if we beat them down, this will weaken them and slow their growth. But it's still not working, according to verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the slavery's not working. We need a new strategy. That strategy is rather than enslave the adult Hebrew men... We will murder the baby Hebrew boys, according to verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see one of them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And it's here in these verses and some to follow that I see ten parallels between the Egyptian genocide and abortion today. Parallel number one, the abortion, just like the Egyptian genocide, was through the medical industry. You notice it is the midwives who have chosen to carry out this grisly assault. This is just as it is in America. This is, um, this is the medical industry doing this. That, that Sifra and Pua, these midwives, they're probably most likely leaders of the other Jewish midwives. Their goal, of course, their whole professional goal is to protect life and to bring life into this world. And the tragedy is, is that they are called not to protect life, but actually to become murderers, to, to kill life. Just, I think, is happening today. Consider, for instance, the organization known as Planned Parenthood, which provides um, many, many beneficial health services to women. There is no doubt that they do that. But in addition to that, they are America's largest abortion provider, doing over 100,000 abortions last year. In fact, in 2015, they did more than $1.3 billion in business. $127 million, just about 10% of that being profit for a non-profit organization. It is through the medical industry that we see this happening, just like in Egypt. Number two, abortion is government-sponsored. In order to kill the babies, the, the order came from the king himself. This was national policy, just as it is today. Our Supreme Court in 1973, in a 7-2 decision, ruled that the high, our highest governing documents give a mother a legal right to take the life of her unborn child. In fact, the government's not only given this right in America... They sponsor this right. Of that $1.3 billion that were get, was given to Planned Parenthood in 2015, I think where do they get all that money? Not from their patients. $528 million of it, over 40% of their revenue, came from the federal government, came from our tax dollars. It is government-sponsored, just as it was in Egypt. Number three, the Egyptian genocide as abortion today is widespread. The order was given for all the Hebrew women to be impacted this, by this. Not just some, not just this area over here. It was for every Hebrew woman who was pregnant. I was going to be impacted by this. Every family would have been impacted by this. It wasn't rare, just as it is today. One out of five babies in America are aborted. One out of three American women have had at least one abortion. There are some neighborhoods when there, where the number of abortions outnumber the number of live births. It is not rare. Merle Hoffman, who is a major voice in the abortion rights movement, has written in her memoir, Abortion is as American as Apple Pie. 
I think she's right. To our great shame, in fact, there are many years when the most common surgical procedure performed in America is abortion. It may be out of sight. It may be behind closed doors. But please do not mistake that for it being rare. It is not rare. Number four, the Egyptian genocide and the abortion epidemic is for national prosperity. The Pharaoh gave this command out of the best interests of his nation. I do not think he, he was this blood-lusting tyrant. Um, I, I think he simply believed his country could not endure the harm of the unchecked growth of the Hebrew people. And so he simply wanted his people, he just wanted to maintain the status quo. He wanted to maintain the standard of living in Egypt, just as it is today. The pro-choice slogan that we all have heard over and over again, every child a wanted child. It is the idea, if you don't want your baby, you don't have to have your baby. If it's not the right time, if it's too inconvenient, if it ends the plans in which you have uh, laid out for yourself, then just have an abortion. As one former president has said, people have a right to succeed in life and not be punished with a baby. The pro-choice the pro um, used to, when, when they would argue for abortion, used to argue that the child in the, in the womb is not a child. They used to call it a mass of tissues or, or whatever. They no longer make that argument. It's, uh, of course, totally un untenable. Uh, in fact, Merle Hoffman, again, she says that my patients knew that abortion stops a beating heart, but my patients made the choice to have an abortion, knew they were making the right one, a decision so vital it was worth stopping that heart. You see, the logic here is just I'm stopping a heart, but I need to because it's the right decision for me. Well, what makes it the right decision? Well, again, Hoffman says, my patients felt a great sense of power that comes from taking responsibility over one's own life. Right? It's to take ownership over your life. Set your own course. And don't let a baby get in the way. This is what's happening in our land. It is for our prosperity. Now, I want to be clear here, just if I could take a moment and give us some biblical truth. All due respect to our former president, children are not a punishment. That, that children are not a punishment that comes and interrupts your plans or hurts your standard of living. According to God's word, children are a blessing. Right? And in fact, the Bible tells us over and over and over and over again, not prosperous is the one who has a fancy car and a big house and a full bank account. Prosperous is the one who has children. That children are our prosperity. For the Bible tells us in Psalms 127 and verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So you want to be prosperous? Have kids. Okay? I am very wealthy. Right? <laughs> Number five, Egyptian genocide. And abortion today is subtle. It's deceptive. See how this king doesn't want, he wants this silent treachery here. 
Let's kill the babies, but let's do it in a way that they don't know we're doing it. The midwives would kill the babies during the birthing process so that the baby would look um, like it died during birth or was born stillborn. Just as it's happening today. It's deceptive. It's subtle. We even have a word called abortion. We created a word to disguise what is actually happening. Just like Pharaoh. The killing of a child in the womb. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, as, as our brother Tom read for us this morning, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, he says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That, in other words, God has, is the author of all human life, and, and the way he creates us induces this praise. It's, it's awe-invoking. It's wondrous. And that every single human being, it doesn't matter what your gender is or what your skin color is or what your mental capabilities are or, or how old you are or whether you're born or not, every single human life is endowed by God with value and is created by Him. And He does that work in the womb. And finally, science is actually caught up with the Bible. Through ultrasounds and microscopic cameras, we now begin to see God's work. You know, by weeks 10 through 14, in, in the child, all organs are present. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver's making blood. The kidneys are cleaning fluid. The baby sucks her thumb and grabs her foot and squints and swallows and recoils from pain. We've seen the baby swim and smile. And yet that is when the vast majority of abortions in America take place. It is subtle and deceptive. Number six. Abortion, just like the Egyptian genocide, is selective. You might write next to that, if you're taking notes, sexist. In Egypt, it is only the boys who are to be killed. The reason is, undoubtedly, that the males are the potential soldiers. So let's get rid of the potential threat. And we could assimilate the Hebrew women through intermarriage. The bloodline is passed down through the man. And we'll just get rid of this culture as we bring them into our culture. It was sexist, just as it is today. But today it is not the boys who are being aborted, it is the girls. Around the world, millions of girls every year are aborted through sex selection abortion in places like India and China. Now, it's currently illegal in America, but it's also illegal in India. And in many parts of India today, the birth rate for every 100 boys born in India there are 62 girls born. In China, one person explains, last year we only had one girl born in the village. Everybody else had boys. Currently, just according to demographics, there are 200 million less girls in this world than there should be, all through sex selection abortion. 200 million. I think John Piper is right when he says the evil of sexism when the evil of sexism unites with the evil of abortion, they tend to expose more clearly the evil of both. This blatant sexism, it, by the way, makes the pro-choice argument very hard because most pro-choice women are in favor of women, as we saw in the Women's March just yesterday. How, how, but how can they decry the act of abortion, right? Every child a wanted child. So if you don't want a girl, what's the problem? See, their argument collapses upon itself. Now, you say, well, okay, well, we're not doing that in America. Well, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. We, we don't know. But I will tell, we'll tell you what we are selecting for is mental capabilities. 
And we have in America right now, we know that 70%, for instance, of those children who are diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb are aborted. 70% today. Number seven, the Egyptian genocide was racist, and so is abortion today. In Egypt, the, this infanticide was done only to the Jews. It was an ethnic cleansing. It was a genocide. And it's happening today um, in America. African Americans make up 14% of the United States population, and yet 33% of the abortions in America are done on African American babies. Now, I do, I'm not in any way trying to suggest to you that pro-choice people are necessarily racist, nor am I saying pro-life people are necessarily not racist. I'm sure there's racism in both groups. But we should have no doubt that the strategies and the marketing in which the pro-choice business and the, the abortion business implements is unproportionately and intentionally targeted to minority populations. It is racist. Number eight, the Egyptian genocide, just like abortion, is all the way up to birth. So these Hebrew midwives were to subtly kill these children. You, you wonder, well, how, how do they do this? How do they do it without the mother knowing? Well, they do it the same way we do it, um, but we don't call it infanticide. We call it partial birth abortion. And, and what, they would, what they could do, as most commentators suggest, is that they would deliver the baby, part of the baby, until they were able to determine the baby's gender before the baby was all the way born and would begin to cry out. They would squeeze the neck until the baby died. And then they would deliver the rest of the baby and present the baby to the mother as, as a stillborn child. Now, as, as, as hard and awful as it is to even say that sentence, I would suggest to you the way that they would perform this is far more humane and gentle than the way that we currently do partial birth abortion, which I will not go into today. Number nine. The Egyptian genocide and abortion in America is a growing evil. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So they're, they're not willing to do this. And so we go to a, a next step to control this immigrant population. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. So they're not going to do this terrible act, right? And so we move from this subtle infanticide to open infanticide, and he commands all the nation now to get involved. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, you are to throw it into the river to drown. And you think, okay, well, finally, the parallels stop between Egypt and the Western world. Well, I'm not so sure they do. I would direct your attention to an article written in the Journal of Medical Ethics on February 23, 2012, when Alberto Gubellini and Francesca Minerva argue for a procedure that they have called afterbirth abortion. They argue, and I quote them, when the circumstances occur after birth that, ha that, that would have justified abortion before birth, what we call afterbirth abortion should be permissible. For instance, when the child impacts the well, I'm quoting them again, the well-being of the family. They, they write that, that a child may, the risk the child may present is, quote, an unbearable burden that a child can create for the psychological health of the woman or her already existing children, end quote. So the idea is, listen, you have a baby and you realize it's too much. You just can't handle it. It's, 
you got enough kids to deal with, and, and this, you can then go ahead and take the child's life in what they call afterbirth abortion. Now, I would, I would suggest to you this is very, very logical. This is the logical end of the pro-choice argument. How is it that we can say that a child has no rights minutes before it's born, and then change something, changing the child's location, all of a sudden the child now has full legal rights in America? This makes sense to me, as evil as it is. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's the crazy academics, right? They've got tenure. They'll do whatever they want. Well, I will direct your attention to a handful of years ago, a woman in Alberta, Canada, strangled her newborn son and threw the baby's body over the fence into the neighbor's yard. The judge sentenced her to three years of probation. Justice Joanne Veet applied her decision based upon Canada's abortion laws, simply arguing that if, if the demands of the child are too great, she could abort her infant or cause the infant's death at the hands of the infant's mother after birth. Mark Stein, the reporter from the CBC News, writes, So a superior court judge in a relatively civilized jurisdiction is happy to extend the principles underlying legalized abortion in order to mitigate the killing of a legal person. That's to say someone who has managed to make it to the post-fetus stage. He writes, How long do these mitigating factors apply? I mean, owners demands-wise, the one, first month of a newborn's life is no picnic for the mother. How about six months in? The terrible twos. And when do we draw the line? I'm telling you, abortion is a growing evil. The logic will not stop in the womb. And this will not stay in Canada either. Al Mohler, the great author, is right. If we will not defend life in the womb, eventually the dignity of every single human life is thrown over the fence. By the way, the, this woman, this mother, did not go to jail for killing her son. But she did, however, serve 16 days in prison for throwing the body over the fence which is illegal in Canada, evidently. <laughs> Number 10, the Egyptian genocide and abortion today is a cause of great weeping. I want you to turn over to chapter 2 and consider verse 23 with me. Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. You see, being under the thumb of Pharaoh, can you imagine the unimaginable pain these people must have experienced in this tyranny, um, this, this Nazi-like oppression of taking their children. They begin to groan and weep. It's destroying them, just as it is today. It's destroying women. Women and men who have experienced abortion, they weep and they groan after they do. Um, it, it, it's what the Bible tells us will happen. You know, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? She can't. This is why emotional scars come after a woman commits abortion. It's unnatural for a mother to turn on her child. It's why, for instance, in November of 2013, in the New York Magazine, interviewed a number of post-aborted women, one being Nicole, uh, uh, said she was 19 when she had an abortion, and she says that both she and her boyfriend regretted it immediately. She writes, when I cry about it, I cry alone. He thinks it would make me sad to talk about it, but I don't want our baby to think we forgot she understands it's her child. It's our baby, she says. That's why post-abortive women are four times more likely to commit suicide. It, it, it damages our heart. It, it impacts us. And I want you to understand, maybe you've walked through this and you feel the shame and the guilt of this. You, I, I encourage you, I plead with you, that do not be silent. You need to share this with others. 
You need people to help you and comfort you in the midst of this. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. And maybe you know what that's like to feel like your bones are wasting away in this silent burden that you carry. God wants to set you free from that. He wants you to find people who love you and love His Son and be able to share this burden and find comfort in their love and grace that they would give you. And maybe you think, well, I can't say that in church. And maybe you've heard other Christian women with the awful, or men, by the way, awful judgmental words coming out of their mouths like, I could never do that. Or how could a woman ever do this to her child? Christians, I want you to understand, if you say things like that, not only are you wrong, but you potentially are keeping a sister in Christ from experiencing the restoration in which Christ has died to buy for them. And so if you have had an abortion or been part of abortion, you need to hear this instead. Not, I would never, or how could you? You need to hear, God forgives you. Forgives you. You know how I know? Because I'm responsible for killing his son. And he forgives me completely. It doesn't matter what sin you have done. He, he forgives you. And my hope is that you would not try to carry this burden alone, but that you would find someone that you can trust, that, that, that they could lean, you could lean on, and you could experience just the freedom of just kind of getting this secret out and finding grace and love in others. And once you experience that comfort and love, you know what you do? You take that comfort and you begin to comfort other women with the comfort in which you have been given. This is why, I, in fact, I think post-abortive women who, who experience the grace and mercy of Christ are so powerful in the pro-life movement, which is exactly why the enemy wants to keep you silent. So he knows the ministry in which you can potentially have. And so I want to invite you, whoever you are, into this fight. To care and to love and to, to stand up for life. And I think God here in this passage gives us this wonderful example of these pro-life heroines. These pro-life women who are standing up for life. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that us men are exempt. We certainly are not. But I think there is unique power that women have in this particular issue. And so, if you will, consider briefly with me the pro-life heroines in Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2. First of all, consider the Hebrew midwives. I don't know if you caught their name. Sifra and Puah. Right? In verse 17, it says, But the Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them, right? We, we, we would not take the life of these children. These, these two women, Sifra and Pua, are the first, pro, the first example of the pro-life resistance that we see. Even breaking the law through civil disobedience. They saw the evil. They stood against it. They stood against their government. So how, where did they get the courage? Well, verse 17 tells us they feared God. They feared God more than they feared losing their jobs. They feared God more than they feared losing their freedom. They feared God more than even losing their lives. And so they're called before Pharaoh, and I'll admit, their explanation is a little creative, isn't it? 
And so we'll, we'll just leave their deception to the side for now. What we do know is two things. Pharaoh is satisfied with it. And more importantly, God is pleased with their action. How do I know? Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Look at this. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. How did God deal well with them? How did He bless them? It is amazing. God blessed them by giving them children. I want to bless you for what you have done. Here I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you babies of your own. Now there's a second blessing that is somewhat subtle. I don't know if you noted Pharaoh's name. Did you catch it? Of course you didn't. He's not mentioned. But whose name do we know? The two little old midwives. Sifra and Pua. So we have a man who in his day is feared by millions. He is a king of a vast nation. And he is to God, what's his name? And yet, for these two midwives, these pro-life heroines, God says, not only do I know your name, their name, I want you, Hamilton Baptist Church, to know the name of Sifra, and I want you to know the name of Pua, because the Bible tells us in Proverbs 10 that the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. I was telling my girls last night, one day you're going to bump into a, a lady in the new world and she's going to say, hi, my name is Pua. And you're going to say, oh, Pua, tell me of what it was to me. Like, were you afraid? How did you do it? And God wants us to know them. And they represent to us the many people who are involved in the pro-life movement. Maybe you'll be inspired by Sifra and Pua to drive the 30 miles down to D.C. this Friday and march for life. Maybe, maybe God will work in your heart as the occasion calls for even civil disobedience. Well, there, there is another uh, pro-life hero, and it's Moses' mother. Do you know Moses' mother's name, by the way? I, I had to look it up, so I'll admit that. Uh, her name is Jochebed. J-O-C-H-E-B-E-D. It's found in Exodus chapter 6. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him three months. When women consider abortion, they do so because the child coming, or the child they have, not coming, excuse me, disrupts, is going to disrupt their life. It's going to change their plans. Many women uh, panic. They, they think there's no other option than abortion. It's the only option available to them. Well, I want you to notice Jochebed. Because here's a woman whose life is in danger if she keeps this baby. I mean, she could literally be killed if she doesn't allow some man to come and take her baby and throw her, him into the Nile. And, and what does she do instead? She keeps him. She hides him. She wants to protect her baby. It's what we do with babies. We keep them near us, right? When we had our babies and I go to work, I'm not thinking, where's my baby? I know my wife has my baby next to her or near her or is watching out for her. This is what we do as with our, with our infants. And then they grow up and they start moving farther and farther away from us and going out into the world. But when they're young and vulnerable, we keep them next to us. Well, you, you know what happens when a child is at its most vulnerable. God in His sovereignty has decided the way He created us is not to put the baby next to mama or, or near mama, but God puts the baby inside of mama. The place of greatest protection in God's plan, and yet it is the most dangerous place in the world for a baby to be. There is a 22% fatality rate in America for being in the womb. 
In other parts of this world, Eastern Europe, the Caribbean, the vitality rate for babies in the womb is over 40%. We need, listen, when you, mamas, when you, when you have a baby, girls, listen to me, college students, listen to me. When you have a baby, and maybe it's through sin, you need the courage to do what is right. You face the consequences, yes? You receive the grace of God, and you choose life like Jochebed. She chose life. She protected And then look, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. Well, she could hide him no longer. She knew that they're not only going to come and kill her, but they'll come and kill their, her baby anyways. And so what does she do when she can't hide the baby anymore? She still chooses life. She gives her baby up. She creates the best possible situation for the baby to live. And the writer of this story, who happens to be that baby, all grown up, tells us about the care which his mama made this basket for him. He says, man, she made it, she covered it in pitch so that it wouldn't take on water. And we find out later in the story that she covered it so the water would not splash over top of him. Right? You think she knew what was going to happen? She had no idea. We don't have all the answers. I understand that. She did not have all the answers, but she knew this. She was going to choose to the best of her ability life over death. Choose life. If you're ever in this position, dads, if your daughter comes to you one day and you are in this position, think, what will my church think? Granddads, friends, brothers, sisters, help those people in this situation choose life like Jacob had. Another heroine, heroine number four, Moses' sister. You all know her name, don't you? Miriam. Look in verse four. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river while her young women walked. Beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent the servant girl, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I mean, this is just incredible, isn't it? It makes you want to applaud. I mean, here's this mama who's... She thought she lost her baby. She not only gets her baby back for a number of years, she gets paid to take care of him. Right? To raise him. And yet here's the sister, Miriam. Right? She's not the mother. Miriam is not in the decision to decide the fate of this child. But she is in close relationship with the person facing this crisis pregnancy. And what does she do? And she is creative. And opportunistic. And she gives of her time and she's faithful and she's watching and she's an advocate. Right? I mean, we could do that, can't we? Right? Especially you women, I think, that you might be in relationship with those who don't know what to do. I'm so thankful for the ministry of Mosaic and ministries like that, that this could be a whole, whole organization of Miriam's. 
And I'm so thankful so, so many of you have worked countless hours through this ministry. I'm so thankful for the Miriams in this church that come and be a Miriam, an advocate, not only for this baby, for the, for the woman as well. And, and, and you may not just be uh, working through a ministry. You may one day literally, as I already said, be a sister. You may be a sister. You may literally have a sister who's going through this or a mom or da- your, 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 your girls or your grandchildren. Be a Miriam. Number, number, I don't know what number, number five, Pharaoh's daughter. We're almost done. Consider the last pro-life heroine. We've got Sifra, we've got Pua, we've got Jochebed, we've got Miriam. Pharaoh's daughter, you know her name? Um, we're not sure. It might be Bithia, B-I-T-I-H-I-A. Read First Chronicles 4 when I'm done preaching. Okay? And uh, the Jewish tradition is that her name is Bithia. And she's listed in the Jewish chronology, perhaps in First Chronicles 4. It may not be her, but... I, I love this woman. Because you think about her dad is this... Uh, <laughs> I mean, she's coming out of this... Geno- one pastor said she comes out of this genocidal family. Out of the genocidal family came a tender-hearted princess. Right? Her father with, could, without pity, send babies, boys to their death. But this, not his daughter. She couldn't do it. She had this maternal heart. And, and you could just imagine um, her finding this child and her being moved and thinking, I can't, let, can't turn this baby over. I can't let this baby die. Right? And, and, and so she takes this baby and she arranges for this baby. And, and then finally she adopts the baby. Verse 10. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. She's in, listen, she represents the people who are in positions of power. Right? And she has the means to protect life. I'm, I'm thankful that you Patrick Henry students are here. Because, because I know some of you, uh, you want to go into law. Or even politics, for some godly reason, I trust, right? (laughs) Right? So I want to be a politician. Now one day you're going to, you might find yourself in a position. Like this, this Bithia was in a position of power and influence. And you could use your position for life. All of us can vote, can't we? Some of you are wealthy. Like, and you have a position... To use your, re- she was wealthy. You have a position to use your resources. We're all wealthy, by the way, but you understand what I mean. You, you have the position to use your resources to support ministries like Mosaic. I'm thankful for our, our sister Mikey, who even sent me some resources and helped me on this message that working for CareNet and gathering resources across this world to get people to, to support the cause for life. These people are like Bithia, this Pharaoh's daughter. And she also represents, doesn't she, the families who, who adopt, who bring children into their home. You know, there's right now two families that I know of in this church that are, are working on adoption. My family is going through the year-long process of being approved to be a, a foster parent. I feel like I'm earning another college degree. I'm doing so much uh, homework. But we're, we're moving towards this, right? There, I, I, in fact, I got the roll out this week and I counted, and just to my knowledge, how many families in this church have adopted children. And I came up with 10 families in this church who have adopted children that are not their own into their family. You're, you're just like... Pharaoh's daughter, a a wonderful example of what it's like to be a pro-life hero. But let me end with this. As I told you last week, before we look to the scripture to find out what we do, we first look to find out what? What he's already done. And and therefore, our pro-life obedience is is done out of a love for God who has saved us. 
And so let me tell you about one last pro-life hero. It's the king's son. His name is Jesus. And I don't know if you can see how all these women point us to Christ. These women who work to save lives in their own situation, in their own circumstances, and, and risk much to do, and extend resources to do, and, and they, they point us to Christ who will do this work. In fact, as great as they were, they couldn't save all the babies being strangled or thrown into the Nile. But Jesus can. Jesus can save them all. And I believe has saved them all. And in fact, Jesus will not only save the babies that are, are, are destroyed in the Egyptian genocide and the abortions of this world. Jesus is not here just to save babies. He's here to, to save uh, abortive mothers and pressuring parents and irresponsible boyfriends and abortion doctors and judgmental religious conservatives. He's willing to, to save them all. He's willing to save not just the oppressed, but the oppressors as well. And He will save them not, not, not just for this life, but for all eternity. And He will do so not by just risking His life, but by giving up His life. Giving up everything. And my hope is that you'd be so moved by what Christ has done for you, you say, if He could do that for me, well, certainly I could, I could stand for life. I could speak up. I could give. I could work. I could sacrifice because of what He's done for me. They all point us to Jesus. In fact, there's one other person that points us to Jesus. It's hard to miss him, and it's Moses. Think about Moses, who was barely escaped this brutal child killing one day to deliver his people, just like Jesus was born amidst the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem to deliver his people. He's, Moses points us to Jesus, but Jesus is, is different. Jesus doesn't save his people by pouring out plagues on others, but he takes them upon himself. I'll take I, the firstborn, will die. As he goes to the cross, dies for our sin, and rises from the dead, and he is now willing to save all who have placed their faith in him. The Bible says if you confess through their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I wonder, have you been rescued by the king's son? Have you been adopted into his family? Have you, like Moses, become a prince and a princess living in the family of our King? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for his love, not just for the righteous, for there is none, but for the unrighteous. We're thankful He loves babies. We're thankful He loves people who commit sin. We're thankful that He loves us so much that He would pay our penalty and die for us. And we pray that because of we have received the love of Christ, we would be so moved even to overcome awkwardness and difficulty and time issues that we would be moved to stand for life with great love and compassion in our heart for all who are engaged in this issue. Help us to be people like you, Jesus. People who long to save. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.